This is Hebrews 20.20. We see Jesus, and it's increment 2.25. Today we'll serve double duty as a freedom special, as this will be aired, as it were, on Sunday, July 3rd, on the eve of 4th of July. So it will be a freedom special, but it will also serve as increment 225 of We See Jesus, as I will explain. Now, throughout the course of our messages in Hebrews, we've referred quite often to Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called a catalog of faith heroes, or perhaps a history of faith heroes. And I've made many mentions that that catalog is still being written for from our phalanx, our little group in Tetelestai in New Kensington, and throughout with all of our DVD groups, we've had people that have departed from this life and entered into the glory of future world to experience the fullness of joy with our Lord and Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the most recent is now Mike Rao, who is a dear friend of Tetelestai, and perhaps especially of our friend Bill Carpenter in Ohio, part of the Potter's Shed. They were sparring partners together and had a lot of great, lively doctrinal discussion and doctrinal rapport, which spilled over sometimes into our war room here in wonderful conversations, wonderful fellowship. And we certainly have many memories of Mike Rao and his beloved wife, June, who is our beloved friend and also a faith hero in her own right. And just so many times to experience the generosity of spirit that he expressed, the enthusiasm for the word of God, he discovered the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ before I did and let me know it often and there's just so many memories that flood the mind we're only a room away from where we used to meet for discussions and sometimes refreshments after service so Mike so long expected to be with his Lord in glory anticipated it with great joy and we celebrate with him today the great joy that he must be experiencing and we know he is experiencing for there are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And I'm sure that beyond all of his expectations, he is rejoicing now. So to tell us thy phalanx extends, I won't say so much sympathy, but I will say our prayers for comfort for compassion and mercy, as well as, of course, sympathy, for we suffer with you in your loss, especially to June, his wife of 43 years, and his children, his sons, Denny, Doug, and Randy, daughters Joy Goodman, Becky Davis, Julie Medlin, Rachel O'Brien, Paula Crawford, and their late daughter, Diana, with whom he is now reunited in glory. Also 17 grandchildren and 10 great 
grandchildren, and of course spouses where they're applicable to all of you. I know that you'll be experiencing times together in conversation where you'll have pleasant memories, humorous memories, and perhaps memories of the tearful kind too. And so June, we certainly are with you, especially now, and I admire your faith, your hope, and your steadfastness in Christ, which came through to me even recently on the phone. And to Bill, too, his closest friend, Bill also exuded the confidence and said that hearing of Mike's departure from this world into the presence of Christ was the best news he'd ever heard. And I understand that, especially in light of the best news of all, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Mike, we salute you from the heart. We'll see you soon. And we'll no doubt read about you in the extended version of Hebrews 11. Today, as I said, a freedom special, and we'll open with prayer. Father, today I entrust my spirit to you, God of truth. I commit my soul to you, our faithful creator. I present my body to you as a living sacrifice, and I present my heart to you that I may be taught of you and I present all those who may listen or hear this message to you and their spirits that they may experience the freedom that is in Christ Jesus by this message and that they may experience and obey an invitation to the greatest banquet of all. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Given that a central biblical passage in this message is from Hebrews, I'm speaking of Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 specifically, which is really a penultimate passage in Hebrews and one that is going to be a spin-off into possibly a future series called Uranopolis, the heavenly city. This today's message I'll call, You've Come to Mount Zion. And again from Hebrews 12, 24, because it is from that passage, we'll call this message both a special freedom message as an acknowledgement of American Independence Day and increment 225 of We See Jesus. Isaiah chapter 25 is a focus of the study also from verses 6 through 9. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, reads like this from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet for all the nations. Notice it says, on this mountain. The reference is to Mount Zion, as we know by looking back at Isaiah 2.2 and Isaiah 14.23. The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast 
for all the peoples on this mountain, a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. On this mountain, note that phrase again, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. What a powerful statement that is. And what a thing to consider, especially after we just considered Mike Rao, our brother. Death destroyed forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. That's emphasized there. From every face. Universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, as usual. Also, this finds its way into Revelation 21.4. So I'll say it again. Verse 8, he will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him. Every one of these phrases is potent, and we may even expand upon some of them, not only in this message, but in the one to come. On that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. What a passage that is. Isaiah 25, 6 through 10, actually. Now make that 6 through 9. Now, I've majored in Hebrews on Hebrews on the level of our time. And in our time, speaking of 2022, a certain adage has gained the status of a cliché. The would-be proverb is like this. Never let a crisis go to waste. It's become a virtual cliche on the news and among politicians. Identifying who it was that originally coined this saying is not important for our purpose. What is important is that this cliche has become virtually a statement of policy with certain people in political power today. The crisis of the COVID pandemic has led to many instances of limiting or even eliminating the First Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens of the USA. Horrific mass shootings have led to a movement not to punish criminals, but to tighten the vice on law-abiding citizens who pose no threat whatsoever to innocent people, especially children, and to restrict and ultimately remove their right to keep and bear arms and thus to protect themselves, their families, and their property according to the Second Amendment of our Constitution in a time of greatly increased violence and criminality. 
parental freedom has been disregarded and despised by school boards and radical teachers who encourage children to question their gender during very vulnerable stages of their psychological and physiological development, sometimes leading to rash decisions on the part of young people that will be profoundly regretted later on and lead to despair and suicide in many cases. The current government has permitted hundreds of thousands, even millions of non-citizens to illegally enter this country along with a murderous flow of fentanyl, a hundred times more potent than morphine, and ISO, nicknamed for another drug which is a hundredfold stronger than fentanyl, and other destructive drugs while neglecting the well-being and freedom of its own citizens. Again, neglecting the freedom of law-abiding citizens of this nation. Marxist ideologues and nihilists are strutting about with their blatant disinformation. And now they're engaged in active measures, as they're called, by hard communists, hardcore communists, to forcefully bring about what they consider in their misinformed idealism to be a heavenly utopia, but which in reality becomes a hellish dictatorial dystopia, as has been proven in many ugly and mass murderous instances in history. These active measures, like those of the Activnia Meropriatia, as it's called in their Soviet brethren, include disinformation, propaganda, deception, sabotage, destabilization, subversion, and espionage, all of which have been encouraged or at best ignored by people in political power in our time. In our time and in our nation, a movement is afoot to emasculate or at least to substantially soften males by making them feel guilty for having testosterone or for taking initiative and by accusing them of so-called toxic masculinity as if being a male is itself somehow poisonous. It's a classic illustration of the weak controlling the strong through guilt. The legal availability of certain drugs, not only for medicinal so-called, but for recreational use, further adds to the pacification of a people, making them ripe for takeover and for submission to a conquering force. Malleable, and docile passivity is not the only result of some recreational drugs, as they're called, but so is psychosis and violence in some, if not many, cases. Consider as an historical illustration certain members of the Manson family in 1969 who brutally butchered people in their own homes without a single qualm of conscience and whose use of drugs like LSD is well known. And it's also well known that these people were manipulated under 
the use of LSD and other drugs. Things have been so twisted and once cherished values so devalued that murderers and arsonists are virtually free to do what they will while saying the wrong thing or unknowingly using the wrong pronoun is fast receiving the status of a hate crime. This is the method of invisible overlords, evil in high places, spiritual evil. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. The invisible overlords of these ideologues and nihilists, here it is, this is their strategy. Take something that people are naturally inclined to be against and make that something so sacred that to transgress it in word or deed or even in thought, people talk about Orwell a lot in 1984, he's the one that coined the term thought crimes. Even in thought is criminal and worthy, at least of the punishment of public shaming and ultimately of disfranchisement, ostracism, imprisonment, or death. Racial slurs are rightfully condemned in our time, rightfully. But any criticism or even questioning, whatever, of the new philosophy of infinite genders is rapidly approaching the category also of a hate crime, to be censured and punished, while at the same time all manner of blasphemy against our Lord God, the creator of male and female, and maker and redeemer of the human race, Jesus Christ is used ubiquitously in blasphemy with nary a disapproving glance by the newly appointed censors. Biblically, and this moves into a second phase of this message, biblically speaking, the current state of the USA is reflected in the analysis presented in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 of the last days. Many times people consider this the last days as an eschatological prophetic promise or threat. But really it's speaking of the last days of any society, any nation, any civilization. In the terminal stages of a given society, these trends and megatrends are inevitable. They are and this is important, again speaking of 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, the signs of the terminal stages of any society, nation, or civilization. First, there are perilous times, as they're called. Perilous implying violent as well as difficult or hard, 2 Timothy 3, 1. Next, as said by 2 Timothy 3, 2, People become narcissistic and greedy, proud, arrogant, blasphemous, dismissive of parents, ungrateful, disrespectful of what is truly sacred. Now, this word disobedient to parents, as it appears in most texts, seems to be out of place. It's somewhat out of place seemingly in the list of egregious characteristics that are listed here. But when we consider recently that 
things that are being foisted on children in schools while parents are being disregarded, that makes the point more sharply taken. Parents are out of the picture as children are indoctrinated and sometimes even encouraged to mutilate themselves, take blockers that block their hormones, change their gender, don't tell the parents. Have an abortion, don't tell your parents. So the dismissal of parents becomes a very egregious trend and belongs in this list. According to 2 Timothy 3.3, 3, people in the terminal stages of a nation become habitually heartless, implacable, slanderous, lacking of self-control, and haters of the good. As values are distorted, and once sacred virtues are mocked and even categorized as vices. As Isaiah again put it in Isaiah 5.20-23, to they call evil good and good evil. They substitute darkness for light, and light for darkness. They substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He goes on to say they are wise in their own opinion and clever in their own sight. They are heroes at drinking wine, fearless at mixing beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. That sounds way too much like the USA today. In line with the analysis in 2 Timothy 3.4, people become treacherous, mindlessly impulsive or reckless, inflated with their own self-importance, lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. And on top of all this, like powdered sugar dusted on a dish of dung, that's my figure of speech. They have a sanctimonious front of religiosity that is in reality a denial of the power of true piety and genuine spirituality. Jesus Christ himself and the spirit of truth and grace is denied. This isn't all, however. In 2 Timothy, make that 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit expressly states and warns that in the last days of a society, a nation, a civilization, there is a departure from the true faith and a turning of the attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is an indictment on the church, on the community which once held firmly to the faith. These demonic teachings are given voice says the scripture, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are cauterized so as to be entirely defunct, not just dysfunctional consciences, but defunct and dead. In our times, millions of young people are led away from the rock-solid truths, God so loved the world, and love one another as I have loved you, and are led to believe the vapid cliché you can't help who you love. 
deceived into thinking that they're free by breaking the constraints and restraints of an obsolete faith. They're becoming slaves of unbelief and untruth. Led like lemmings to believe that they are entitled to their own truth while dismissing the truth. They are led away from the freedom that can only be had by learning the truth that is in Jesus. The knowledge of the Son by which alone they can be free indeed. This message will include many scripture references that I'm not giving now. Again, the church, by and large, and I'm not speaking of all the church, but the church, by and large, as we've tried to say lately, has not helped. The church itself is largely enslaved by doctrines of demons that have infested the household of faith. Thankfully, the wood of the cross of our Lord Jesus is treated for immunity to such infestation. These doctrines deny the total and universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and his centrality to the Christian message. And they insult the spirit of grace who glorifies Jesus Christ and reveals the universally reconciling, redeeming, rectifying, restorative, and emancipative efficacy of Jesus Christ's once and forever self-sacrifice at the juncture of the ages to put away sin for all people of all times. Instead, for one sad example that juts out above many others, they hold as a major tenet the doctrine of a God who allows countless millions of human beings to be discarded into an endless hell of torment for refusal to believe or behave in accordance with his will. The church needs not be reconciled to God, but the church needs to be reconciled with the doctrine and the truth of the universal reconciliation that has been wrought by God in Christ. Being reconciled to God, however, the church, in many cases, have become enemies of the cross of Christ, its universal horizon. At its base, speaking now to Tetelestai Phalanx specifically, our momentary retreat, I put air quotes around that word, from meeting in person is not a retreat at all. It's rather an advance of a forward line of troops and the standing firm of an MLR, a main line of resistance, a rear guard against the invisible power brokers and the current sweeping social and pseudo-spiritual megatrends of the present evil age. Our temporary hiatus from meeting together does not, does not constitute the forsaking of the assembling together per Hebrews 10.25 because as I've already mentioned, because that verse was specifically directed to Christians who were failing to assemble together because of fear of reprisal from the religious establishment and the political powers of their time. In fact, the decision to be exclusively online for an indefinite interval has been a kind of protest against those who do assemble together around a Christian message, so-called, 
which has been tried and found wanting on the scales of divine justice and grace and love. Now, third phase. On this celebration of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, I ask this. What then shall we do? The answer, in a word, is to let Jerusalem come into our minds. A phrase I've lifted from Jeremiah 51.50 and treated somewhat in our Revelation series, especially in the distillation phase. Now with regard to this, of great importance, is a passage in Hebrews that we alluded to already, and I'll read it now in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. And this is my translation from the original Greek text. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Please notice the Mount Zion, which we began with in Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain. I will destroy death forever. On this mountain, I will take away the burial shroud and the sheet that covers the corpse. And of course, we know that instead of that sheet and that shroud is the true tent, our Lord Jesus Christ, under whom the whole of the human race is welcome and the whole of the human race covered. Notice that Mount Zion and the city of the living God are together because Mount Zion is in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to myriads, that's ten thousands times ten thousands of angels in celebratory assembly. And to the community of the firstborn, that's the true church, radically transformed and transfigured registered in heaven, and to God the justifying judge of all, and to the spirits of the justified made complete, and to the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus sprinkled in heaven speaks of a salvation applied to all humanity and really to all the cosmos and all of creation. Mount Zion, to which you have come, says the Bible, is located in the heavenly Jerusalem, which is not just a city-state, but a present state of mind for those whom God has awakened to see Jesus, especially in his universally saving significance. The spirits of justified people made perfect refers to the alteration of their situation. Made perfect refers to the alteration of their condition and change of somatic status. Mount Zion is the site of the eschatological messianic banquet. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, which the Lord himself will host. And indeed, he has already begun hosting it. 
He knocks at the door and we're bid to answer and open the door and he will come in and dine with us. Now, as an adjunct to today's series, or today's message, I want you to consider another passage. I almost forgot about this. Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. I've also translated that from the New Testament Greek. And it reads like this. Jesus said to the one who had invited him. He was at a meal at the home of a prominent person. Jesus said to that person, when you host a breakfast, literally in the Greek it says that, or a dinner, don't just call your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they give you a return invitation and you're repaid. Instead, when you host an elaborate banquet, that's what the Greek text brings out, when you host an elaborate banquet. Invite those who are poor, maimed through injury, disabled, blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. For you'll be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Now there's seven things I want you to know about this right now. Jesus, first of all, is referring to himself here. He's the one that throws this elaborate banquet on Mount Zion. He's referring to what we just read in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. He's the Lord of hosts. He throws a banquet. Everybody that comes is unable to repay this banquet because it is a banquet of eternal salvation, which they could never repay. It's a matter of eternal grace, which we can never repay. And the Lord loves to give that which can't be repaid. He doesn't rejoice in something that is given and can be repaid. That takes away the whole meaning of grace. And if grace isn't grace, if grace is works, it's no matter, no matter of grace anymore. So here's seven things about Luke 20, Luke 14 to 12 to 14. These came to me just off the top of my head. I wish I had time to develop this. Probably could do it in a whole book. But first, Luke, the third gospel, has a decidedly universalistic horizon. As noted in the message of the courier angel announcing the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, which he says is, quote, good news of great joy which shall be to all people. This universal horizon is also noted by the praise-filled prayer of Simeon in the temple, who upon seeing the infant Jesus rejoiced that he had, quote, seen God's salvation which he had prepared in the presence of of all peoples. Second thing about this little passage, as such a universalistic evangelist, Luke portrays Jesus' audacious inclusiveness even as early as his sermon in the synagogue in Luke 4.18 and following through 26 by Jesus' deliberate references to the widow of Zarephath outside of Israel in Sidon 
and to General Naaman of Syria, to whom God sent the prophet Elijah and Elisha, respectively. And here in Luke 14, 12 to 14, Jesus' reproof of exclusiveness with saving and healing effects. Third, in Luke 14, 12 to 14, Jesus is alluding to, and this is kind of repetitious, the elaborate banquet or feast which he himself, the Lord of hosts, is beginning to host. A banquet which we will, will be universally attended in the resurrection of the righteous or the just on Mount Zion in the heavenly city, Jerusalem, that which I call Uranopolis, the heavenly city. I say universally attended because Jesus, the righteous one, by one righteous act in Romans 5.18, justified and gave life to all human beings. And by his act of obedience to the death of the cross, he made many, and that means all, righteous in him. Furthermore, in Christ, all will be made alive with the highest possible quality of imperishable life in resurrection. Fourth, in this pericope, or brief passage, Luke 14, 12 to 14, Jesus obliquely but creatively alludes to himself as the host of the elaborate banquet called the messianic meal or banquet, one which no one may repay him for. He alludes to this elsewhere in what we call the Lord's Prayer, for example, where he includes the petition to our Father in heaven that he would give us today the bread of the messianic banquet in Matthew 6.11, an elaborate feast which will be consummated in the resurrection of the just when Jesus' own joy will be full, Hebrews 12.2. Remember what Jesus said in his famous manna midrash, his teaching on the manna. He said this, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says, the life of the world. Not the life of a few, or even the life of many in the world, but the life of the world. This bread is Jesus' flesh, which all the world eats, and by doing that, participates in his eternal life and his eternal joy. That's the symbolism of the Messianic banquet on Mount Zion. Fifth thing about this passage, Jesus alludes to the prophetic word of God in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, where, quote, the shroud of death is removed from over all the nations and is replaced by the true tent under which all the human race finds shelter. When the Lord of hosts hosts a banquet for all the nations on Mount Zion, when death is destroyed, when the Lord God wipes away the tears from every face, and removes his people's disgrace from the whole earth. And on that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. They repeat it. This is our God. We have waited for him. This is our Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his 
salvation. This word is echoed in Titus 2.13 in the New Testament, where it says, We wait with tiptoe anticipation for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven. See, we've already come to Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven. Freedom will never be taken away there. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, closer to home, Hebrews 20.20 that is, in Hebrews 9.28, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of all of humanity, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. As we've seen at least once and at least a second time, that Jesus Christ bore the sins of many means that he bore the sins of all of humanity and took them away. And as we've seen more than once or twice, those who are waiting for him are all of humanity and even all of creation, whether it knows it or not. He brings with him salvation to the cosmos from which he took away sin. Taking away sin, which is the sting of death, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, he then destroys the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples. He destroys death, just as he destroyed the one who uses leverage of death to keep people in fear all their lives, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Sixth thing about this little paragraph this banquet will be hosted by the Lord of the Armies on Mount Zion, which is featured in future world as being in the heavenly Jerusalem into which we in our very own time have come. You have come to Mount Zion because these are the last days in which God has spoken in a son. In a climactic passage in Hebrews, therefore, Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem are featured this Mount Zion is the site for the all-inclusive banquet that will be hosted by the Lord of the Armies, Yahweh Tzavaot in the Hebrew, in which all the nations will be served as those who have been saved. It will be a banquet which no attendee can ever repay because the nature of God's grace is a gift which cannot be repaid. Just as the maimed and disabled and blind cannot repay a person who hosts for them an elaborate banquet. The Lord rejoices in giving that which cannot be repaid. This joy will be experienced by Jesus in the resurrection of all humanity, which marks the permanent alteration to the infinite better of the universal human and creational condition. In a real sense, however, and this is what I want to emphasize, this banquet has already begun. It's already being hosted by our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's to be consummated and celebrated in future world, in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. Seventh, again, this banquet is of such a nature that none of its attendees can ever repay 
none can or will send out an invitation later on to repay the Lord of the armies, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this banquet, like the heavenly tabernacle that we're studying in Hebrews 8, is one that is made by the Lord and not man. And one which is a matter of grace that can never be paid back, but only everlastingly enjoyed. That's the thing about grace. It can't be repaid. No counter-invitation can be sent to host the banquet of the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. Now, as we move to close, in the opening pages of his 1922 book, I'm reaching deep into the treasure chest for this one, entitled Grace, Lewis Sperry Chafer listed and described seven fundamental facts about grace. The third of those facts is this. Grace cannot incur a debt. Included in his memorable observations under the, this fact, Chafer wrote, quote, Any attempt to compensate God for his gift is an act so out of harmony with the revealed truth and exhibits such a lack of appreciation of his loving bounty that it cannot be other than distressing to the giver. Chafer closed his brief treatment of this fact of grace by concluding, grace is out of question when recompense is in question. To this, I would add this, freedom is the state of mind when we have let the heavenly city, Jerusalem, into our mind. And when we partake of the messianic feast in which our host is Jesus himself, the mediator of a new and better and everlasting covenant to whom we have come. Freedom is partaking of the grace of God which requires no repayment and indeed which could never be repaid but only enjoyed in freedom. After all, Jerusalem, this Jerusalem above, as Paul called it. Paul also called the mother of us all. She's above and she is free. Galatians 4.26 As we've noticed before, the passage in question, Hebrews 12.22-24, begins with the words, You have come to Mount Zion. That's my Independence Day freedom special message. It doesn't say you will come to this heavenly Mount Zion, but you have come to Mount Zion. That you've already come to the great messianic meal on Mount Zion is inferred by what immediately follows. You've come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in a party assembly a celebratory assembly, a feast. It says in festive assembly. There's an elaborate banquet going on in the Mount Zion to which you have come. In fact, the implication is that this entire passage describes a celebration attended not only by countless angelic beings, but by the church of the firstborn, by God the justifying judge of all, by the spirits of the justified made complete, and by Jesus, the judged for us, 
and the mediator of the new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. The fact that we've already come to Mount Zion and that we're already come to this party of all parties and that we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, is also supported in a passage by Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, B, and 8, where the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Then he adds immediately, let us therefore celebrate the feast. The feast can only be appreciated and celebrated in what Paul calls sincerity and truth meaning that our old false selves are disinvited and only the new self, the true self, may celebrate this freedom. That this great banquet is being celebrated now is also indicated by Jesus telling his disciples to pray, give us today the bread of tomorrow, the bread of future worlds meaning the bread of the banquet already being celebrated in future world, of which we may partake regardless of what's going on in this present evil age in our time during our temporary stint here. We're partakers of this unrepayable grace, of this unimpeachable freedom. Stand fast in it. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We thank you, Father, that our stint on this earth is brief. And it's a time to continue in the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we may know the truth and so that the truth will make us free. May we know this truth. May we experience this freedom. May we stand fast in it. For we ask it in the name of the one who freed us for freedom, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.